Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and this week I welcome Jim Van Tygum and Rob Kalrowski to the show to talk about the human side of reliability. Now we've talked about this topic a lot over the years and it is a very important one because, you know, as we talk to our different experts in RCA and any sort of failure analysis zone, the human factor always comes up and... So it's a huge issue within our industry that we do need to tackle. And, you know, if we focus on actually solving and working through human issues instead of just technical issues, we'll see a lot more positive results in more than just the one focused area that we're in. Anyways, I will get off my soapbox and let you listen to the episode. And before we jump into that, a quick message from our sponsor, NanoPrecise. Hello everyone, this is Steve Doby, co-host of the Maintenance Disrupted Podcast. When you go to scale with predictive maintenance technologies, you need to avoid alert overload for your ops team. Imagine deploying a thousand monitoring points and getting nine notifications in a two-week period without missing any key events. Machine Doctor, in combination with Rotation LF from NanoPrecise, accomplished just this. Avoid the cry wolf syndrome with your ops team by scaling your PDM with the right team. You can check out NanoPrecise at nanoprecise.io. And of course, if you want to reach out and get more information about our sponsor, feel free to message me or Blair and we'll get you in touch with the NanoPrecise team. All right, thank you for listening and here's your episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I've got Rob Kalroski and Jim Van Tygum with us to talk about the human side of reliability and maintenance. Um, so tell us, Jim, before we, we jump into the topic, why don't you give us a brief uh, overview of who you are and where you've come from and, and uh, what you're up to now? Absolutely, Steve. Uh, I started my career, the industrial career, in 1988, uh, working for a glass company. So I started as a maintenance technician and then held a position of a production supervisor and maintenance manager eventually. I worked my way up to the corporate office level, uh, implementing and training and uh, supporting our CMMS system throughout uh, 30 plants globally. So I had a lot of experience traveling around and witnessing the same kind of problems from plant to plant. And, and uh, it was a very interesting career when it lasted. Uh, after or post that career in that company, I basically built a plant from demise premise to a fully operational plant with uh, I-beams and uh, also responsible for the maintenance portion, project management, so on and so forth. And today I work for a window company, window and vinyl manufacturer uh, based in Canada and US. And uh, again, at a corporate level, supporting the maintenance division of the continuous improvement department uh, with the implementation of uh, the software that they have in place. Also helping out with uh, the business structure of uh, the implementation of all the different uh, aspects of that uh, program procurement, material management, repair history, so on and so forth. So that's it in a nutshell of where I am today. Awesome. Yeah. And so now I know everybody that listens, I think, knows Rob by this point. You've been on plenty and, you know, it used to be your podcast. Um, <laughs> but 
what so how did you guys get connected like what what's that what's that connection there that you guys started working together sure i mean i mean i think jim has been following this show since the beginning basically and we've been, we've been chatting on and off for i guess it would be three over three years now um and i guess the connect i mean the big connection when we started working together we had four well, including Jim, we had four of the guys from Jim's team uh, as part of the leadership launchpad program that we ran from roughly June till mid-September this year. And we've really started to transform the plant that they work in from a very, I would say very typical, but a very typical manufacturing facility that we see out there you know, lots of fear, lots of burnout, lots of stress, people running around reactivity to now we've started to build this environment of trust and psychological safety and a thought process that is more focused around continuous improvement and experimentation than, you know, what we typically see out in industry. So it's been, I guess, around four months now. Um, in terms of a return on investment, we're, we're not sure exactly yet, but I do know one thing is they've absolutely had a positive return on investment from that and from the investment they made, because I know at least one of the guys that was part of the program, he was actually applying to other jobs when we were, when we started. And if you look at the turnover, now he's in a better position, he's moving, he's happy. And if you just look at raw statistics, uh, to replace somebody is around six to nine months of their salary. And so right now we can say at a minimum, the return on investment was probably somewhere in the five to 10 X range, just because of you, you are now keeping a great employee when you would have lost one. Yeah, and not to mention like, the engagement that employee has now, I imagine is much higher. So the quality and, and uh, the quality and maybe a quantity of work coming out is probably higher than where it was. I, I know when I've been maybe disengaged at work, it's not, not always your best work necessarily coming out at those times. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so no, that, that's great to hear. Cause it's, you know, we, we talk about it a lot. Like we've, you know, you're on the show a lot talking about, the human side of of this uh, of maintenance and reliability, Robin. Um, but you know, and, and Jim, before we start recording, you you said it where you know where most of our problems are not technical problems. It's issues that we've been trying to solve for the last 10, 20 years, and we're still trying to solve the same one. So, what's the actual issue? So when you when you look at it, Jim, from what you've seen in your your facility, as things have been moving around these positive changes, um, like what the technical issues, are you seeing those go away as, as this starts rolling through or has that not come yet? Like five or six months may not be enough time. It's a, it's a very slow process and we need to get that in. We need to get that mindset set right from the beginning. This isn't something that's going to happen. Uh, you know, one day you went to a course the next day, you're, you know, you're all cured of life's ailments. It doesn't happen that way. People grow at different levels and different speeds. And we saw it in the leadership launchpad program. 
Some people embrace very quickly and some people take a little bit more time. Even in private, previously in uh, you know in taking the courses, the launch pad, even for myself in leadership, there are certain things we stumble across, understanding ourselves, and then turn around, turning around and understanding people around us. But it it's still a work in progress. To answer the question, it doesn't happen overnight, but we do see some positive changes that are taking effect. For instance, this person Rob is speaking of, he embraced every bit of the course, he went and engaged with his people. He didn't tell his people what to do. He asked his people, what can we do? What can we do to make a difference? And it was surprising to see the results that he he obtained. There were uh, increases in the throughput on his particular line within the plant. Uh, he had gone on vacation, came back. The work was still uh, running at the same level that he had created before he left. All those are signs that somebody's making a difference. And the difference isn't about the, the machinery. It isn't about how much material is coming to the line. It's about how we engage people. How do we talk to people? How we get people to open up and feel an ownership and pride in what they're doing. So that when they come to work, that they're, they have a sense of purpose. And what we're doing is in our industry is we're killing ourselves by not giving people that sense of purpose and that trust that they are a part of the program, that they matter, their lives matter per se in, in this uh, environment or in this, in this instant. And those are the things that I had saw for 30 years of studying this. When I living in the maintenance world, I realized why is it that we can't get our PMs done the way uh, at, the, at the level that we should being scheduled? Why do we have so much downtime? And then when I started to peer a bit more into the situation, I'm finding that there was inconsistencies and incongruencies in our production process. If we don't get production under control, we don't get maintenance under control. I don't care who you are. And you want to get production under control or any or quality under control or, or uh, uh, material management under control. We got to start with people, consistency and congruency. If you're consistently and congruently a jerk, you're going to get certain results that are not favorable. But if you're consistently and congruently engaging your people so they look at you as a leader, that you don't have all the answers, but you're willing to help them and be there for them, you're going to see some real positive results. That's what we're looking at. It's a hard thing to measure at first. And it's uh, it can be a uh, it's a task that doesn't give you, as I said, that instant gratification. But as time moves on, when somebody says to you, hey, thank you for being there. Hey, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for, uh, for helping me with this situation on the floor or whatever it is. Those are big rewards for themselves, for you as a leader. But also, it's the rewards listening to people say, thank you for appreciating me. Because most of the time, it's about appreciation. If you listen to your maintenance people or if you've ever managed a maintenance department or an engineering department, you'll find that most of the time you're a team, and this applies to all the departments, if you tell them they've done a good job or, hey, uh, how can I help you? I'm a big whiteboard guy. So if you were in my office and we had to solve a problem, we're on a whiteboard and I'm asking you, what do you think? What are your thoughts towards this? What do you think we can implement quickly? How do you think it's going to affect the rest of our uh, our uh, production throughput or the your life in general as far as ease is concerned of doing your job? Those things opened up a massive 
reward indoors in the sense that now the employees, the maintenance people were engaged. They were looking for the problems. They were looking for things that were in their control. It's not a PM is not just a PM now. A PM is looking to do the instructions required on the PM, but it's looking beyond the PM and look at the see the problems at hand and see if we can record them and make some type of, uh, um, say, proactive, um, I would say, proactive event to be, take care of it, as we all want to do. But so many times for the last 30 years, this has not happened. You just get PM, people that just do a PM, they don't look for anything more than just the PM task if they're not pencil whipping and so on and so forth. So a lot of what we're doing in the leadership launchpad program or, or Rob has been doing is building that trust, giving people a sense of control of their own life, not to set yourself stuck, uh, taking responsibility for the consequences of somebody else's actions. That becomes a big issue. And if we do that, that's where our stress comes from. And in our maintenance world, we get so many times, we, excuse me, we get uh, into situations so many times where we take on the ownership of somebody else's consequences. And then what happens is we get burnt out ourselves because there are things out of our control. We can't control how production, um, the attendance of production employees, we can't control whether an operator does the job correctly or not. We can affect that, but we're not really in control of that. And so when we start having to take control of that ourselves and take that upon ourselves, we create our own stress. So the idea is to foster a different way of looking at your position, looking at your job, looking at the way we speak and engage to people. Because if we work truly on that and build that foundation, maintenance engineering becomes much, much easier if we're just talking about maintenance engineering. Yeah, the technical bits, that's the easy part, right? It's the, the people that's hard. Now, uh, we talk about, and it, it sounds like your organization there had a lot of interest in, in going through this. And I imagine you were a big driver about bringing this um, leadership launchpad and, and that's to it. Now, not every place has a champion and not every person at a facility has the influence to, to make those things. So, you know, if you're a listener to this podcast and you're just uh, a maintenance engineer that doesn't have doesn't feel like you have much influence in this space like what can they start doing to make that to make that change because like you're talking about widespread culture change which takes a lot of time a lot of effort and investment as well from like the the leadership launchpad and getting the um experts and stuff involved as well like it's it's not something you know the engineer that's just trying to necessarily improve their small area um and, and hopefully domino effect to the organization, but um, not everybody has that influence. So, so how do you think those individuals in that position can start, start addressing the human side of maintenance and reliability from, from their chair? Well, it starts with yourself first. You know, if we stand back and say, well, we have to change starts at the top. Well, define top for me. Where does the top start? Does it start with the VP? Does it start with the plant manager? Does it start with the department head? Or does it start with you, Steve? Which one? Again, it's not defined. We stick ourselves in some type of little box and we don't look outside of the lines of where we are to decide where it is. We take ownership ourselves. So in our plant, interestingly enough, 
I worked with the plant manager because I was the maintenance manager of this plant. I've worked hand in hand with him because I said, he's the top. He needs to embrace this. And interestingly enough, everything we did in the leadership launch pad, as I, as I speak daily with this person, when we talk about strategic plans of moving forward, his mindset has dramatically changed towards how to engage people. He still needs more encouragement and, and so on. And uh, probably some, he, he needs to go through the course and, and so on and so forth. But he has seen the positive effects of, of the outcome of what has happened with our team. But remember, when you start these things, you have to educate yourself before and get yourself to a point where you live and breathe this type of approach before you can go and, and spread the word to others. And it is a process. So when you say, where do we start? The top usually starts with yourself. And then you figure out where the top is, where you want to start. If it's the plant manager or department manager, so on and so forth. Another thing to this, Steve, is we got to stop worrying sometimes about the whole corporation. Sometimes you have to do it for yourself. Be the best leader you can be, the leader you want others to be to you. And then when you do that and we get out and we work with our departments, we're not only learning and building our own skill sets, but we're driving and helping people to become better versions of themselves. As Rob said many times, he wants people to go home happy. Well, create that environment for people to go home happy. You're in, if you're in control of a department, you're the head, you're the top, be the top. And then if you don't like the organization because maybe it's driven by high achievers and fixed mindsets and not you know, high performers and uh, growth mindset, make your decision what you want to do. Do you want to continue to be in that plant or do you want to move and ask better questions and move your career to a different plant where maybe people, you're starting to look at people above you and see if they have the mindset and they, the ability to change their direct, the direction of the company in a positive way through leadership and true engagement of people. The answer is thinking out of the box, but really you should start with yourself and then pick a starting point yourself or a manager above you or somebody below you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that's a good comment, especially on, we always talk about top, top down, bottom up, you know, affecting change in those areas. And it's all, always the question, like, you know, I got a project, I got my VP level support, but I can't get it done. Uh, why not? Like, cause there's roadblocks at the GM, the superintendent, whatever different levels there are in between that. And, you know, the okay. same goes for, I think this, this human side too. It's fine for a CEO to come in and say, you know, our core value is our people and mental health and like, um, you know, the that human aspect that's in our core values. But if the people below that person don't believe it or don't agree with it, it's not going to happen. Like it's and when you look at bottom up, then you you have the people at the bottom that. You know, you are the ones where the change really needs to happen uh, because they're the ones doing the work and actually creating the value for the company. Um, and, and you know, being so far removed often from it. And, you know, it's just the same things over and over and again. They see the same issues come through. Like we we just started our maintenance mastermind and we're already getting questions, questions like that. Like, look, we see this same problem. We have parts missing every time we tell them parts are missing, they need to fix their process. And it's like, well, the issue isn't the parts missing. That's just the symptom. The The problem is the, 
the processes, the the people involved, everything up to getting that part delivered, that system is broken. And when you look at it, I can always guarantee you they've got SAP, they've got all the tools imaginable. They've spent a small fortune on getting the right part to the right place at the right time, yet it doesn't happen because there's people behind it that aren't following process, don't care about the process, or maybe checked out. Like it's, um, there's a wide variety of reasons it could be happening, but like you can spend all the money you want on a technical solution. But as you said, until you start looking at it from the people and taking the people side of it, nothing's going to change. It's all about that change management and, and, getting people involved properly and getting the proper stakeholders involved. Now you're talking about an individual that needs to check or, or figure out where they want to affect that change. And, you know, maybe it's their direct supervisor, maybe it's them. Um, and, and that's all well and good, but if you are, you know, let's say you're, you're that guy looking for a new job um, and you decide today I'm coming in. I've got a different mindset and you walk in and you, you try to start making change, but nobody else around you has changed. Everything's the same. You've had uh, maybe a shower thought before you came into work saying, I'm this day is going to be different. And that's definitely where it starts. But what is the next step after that? Because nobody else has changed yet. So how do you start making that impact on that first day? Because I don't know about you, but I've made a lot of new year's resolutions and January 2nd, they're all out the window. Uh, this is this is really no different in my mind where we've said we're doing something different, but you're coming into a place that's the same. Like, let's go, let's go back, <laughs> right? Because you said a lot there that we need to talk about. So the first thing is this whole concept of the CEO comes and says our values are this. Are they truly that, or is it just some whiteboard material that they sat down with McKinsey or Bain and they came up with to make themselves feel good? And it's true. Like I'm sure most CEOs, unless they're sociopaths, believe that their people are number one. Now, when, and I said this, I say this every time, when it comes down to investment in our industry, Everyone says safety number one, people number one. And yet when a decision comes to spend a million bucks on a safety initiative versus a million bucks on a production initiative, every company that I've ever worked for and everyone that I've ever seen picks production, right? So we're not walking our values. Second thing is along with that, middle management is some of the most incredibly hard things to do in the world. If you're the bottom rung, you execute work. If you're the top rung, you execute vision. Middle managers are the ones who have to put the two together. That's incredibly hard to do. You're because you're limited on whatever top down gives you in terms of budget, in terms of authority, in terms of vision. And then also you're limited by your people and what they need to do on a day-to-day -day basis. So like what we often see is like, is that same situation, right? It's not that we, if we ideally could, we would have $2 million, we would spend a million on safety and a million on the production. 
but we're limited to 1 million. So we have to make a decision, but we're also getting hammered by, you know, the CEO saying our production's not high enough. So what happens? We pick the production asset. That's what's the hardest part is those people. It's not like if they would pick safety, they would probably get hammered for not having higher production or why'd you pick safety or whatever. So we addressed that. Second thing is about this starting with ourselves. Like, let's look at two of the people who came through the program, Dylan and Garrett. So Garrett, he had a team at his previous employer. He affected that team. And actually when he left, because his values were misaligned with the organization that he worked in, his team said, basically, we're like the best leader we've ever had is walking out the door. That is a potential. Now, Dylan, Dylan is, I know I'm sure everyone knows because you can go back and listen to it, but Dylan is a frontline mechanic or millwright. He goes around, travels around, fixes things. But now he had he understood where he wanted to go better. He understood the impact he wanted to have better. He talked to the basically the owners of the firm that he works at. And now he's launching a department and he will be the head of the department going where he wants to go. And it also like some of the stuff around his job includes him being able to go to training and him being able to hire people and, and pick direction. And it's not that it's not that Dylan fundamentally changed. It was just, he under, he got more clear around his values, where he wanted to go. And then he was more purposeful in his decision-making. And like literally yesterday, we got a question on LinkedIn and I was tagged in it and someone was saying, well, should I take a maintenance planning course or a safety course? I mean, I can give you recommendations on what courses, but the question is, where do you want to go? What do you want to do for your career? What's the end game for you? What's the legacy that you want to leave on the world? These are all the questions that you need to answer. And then you can say, well, hmm, you know, I want to do, you know, I want to do this. Then it becomes obvious. Should you take planning or should you take safety? Or should you take something completely different? Like maybe you want to take, uh, I don't know, some something else, right? Now, in terms of what you're saying, Steve, about, people changing or not changing around you and you thinking so the first thing is you need to change yourself and then it's not a new year's resolution it's just you and it's just you being you every day and you never change and like you never deviate from you being you that changes the people around you because they see you differently. And then the second thing, and Jim can talk about this a lot, is really leaning in and seeing people and hearing people because no one's ever done that for them before. And it requires incredible empathy, incredible curiosity, an incredible willingness to be vulnerable yourself, to be open to what someone will tell you, 
but also to create a space for someone to tell this to you. And I'll give you an example for this. I had a conversation maybe a few days ago with a with a girl and we were talking about basically some work, like some work stuff. And we kept going in and it got deeper and deeper somehow. And we were talking about, you know, my transformation. And she was talking about basically her childhood up to now. And I kept digging into her because something didn't feel right to me. And it turns out that like something basically like three people in the world know that, you know, something happened to her recently and she had to make an incredibly hard decision, which definitely results in trauma. And it's not that we were trying to get there. And it's not that I'm a therapist, although I did recommend she go see one. But it's like, whatever the rest of the people she talks to, none of them get there. And that's truly what people, it's not that they want to share their traumas. They just want to be seen and heard for who they are. And no one does that. And that's the reason why these guys who work in a plant for 20 years, they're checked out. Because they've tried to say, hey, you should do this. And everyone's like, go pound sand. And then they do try it again and it's go pound sand. And then they try it a third time, it's go pound sand. And then they're like, well, why do I try? Why do I say anything anymore? And if you just find that space and create that space and open them up, it changes not only them, it changes their attitude and it'll change the entire plant you work at. You know, I, I definitely hear what you're saying, and and I under, and I understand that too. And it's, you know, there is a point where where work and and life, like you know, how everybody talks about the work life balance, and you know, don't bring your stuff from home to work, but that doesn't happen. That's that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, one of the things I find, like when when I try to talk to somebody at work or or and I'm very cognizant of it as well, because I don't always do it well, is most people don't know how to listen either. You tell them a problem, and whether it's work or whatever it is, and it's, you know what, I have that same problem. I did this, this, and this, and nothing ever comes. And everybody thinks that reiterating exactly what they say, but from something you've done is the correct way to listen, but that's not. Like that's not active listening. It's about the understanding of it, not of the, you know, I, I've done that same problem. And, and so I think that's also a piece that's missing is, is Rob, clearly you know how to listen because you can continue that conversation going and get people to bring more out and, and do that now. And I, am by no means an expert at it either. And I, I don't think I do it well, um, but working on active listening skills, both from, you know, and you look at any part of your career, whether you're negotiating, which you're doing every day at your job, active listening is important to actually understand what the other people are asking for. I was in a meeting and I thought it went well. And then I had my, my supervisor afterwards tell me, he's like, so what did you actually take from that meeting? What I took and what was actually said was miles apart. 
because I took what they said at face value and I didn't read between the lines and I didn't didn't really listen to what they were saying. I heard what I wanted to hear. Now, that's what everybody or most people out there do because most people aren't good active listeners. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with this, but uh, other than trying to identify that missing skill set that we have and, you know, the technical minded people I find are even worse at it. Like the more technical you are and the more you just want to look at the machine, the worse you are at actually listening to people. And the biggest successes I've had in making a difference in maintenance have been when I took what the technicians are saying and tried to do something about it, whether it worked or not. Now, uh, those are small wins for me. And, you know, whether they culminate much to the organization, you know, I could track it through and find out, but we didn't have things in place to really do that. But, you know, it's, it's easy to say that you can go into a site or you can go back into work and be open and, and talk but to actually do it, you need skills. You need to learn how to actively listen. You need to learn how to not make everything necessarily about you or, or your world and how, and you need to understand why that doesn't actually work. I don't know if that made sense. I don't need to get too much into that world of, um, <laughs> but, but there is a skills gap there. We're not trained how to do this. And, 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 and you're at the training. It is and, about and I, yeah. And then yes. the first the first part of this, right, is and this is why Jim and I talk about this a lot, is we cannot give empathy to others until we are first emotionally intelligent about ourselves. Yeah. That's how it works. It's literally a model. And if you want to look it up, Daniel Goleman wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence, and it has the model in it. And it talks about basically we need to work through these categories before we can become empathetic and relationally intelligent. We have to start with ourselves. We have to start with self-awareness, start with emotional intelligence, learn how to regulate our own emotions, learn how to understand where we are, and then we can work towards empathy and relational intelligence. Exactly. So yeah, it's, a, it's, it's literally defined. It's about uh, the feelings are about being in alignment with your values and your principles and your beliefs of life. As Rob said, Rob hit it right on the head. Where are your alignments? Are you in alignment with the true value you have? Most people that go into maintenance, I would say almost all of them, when a maintenance person goes into a maintenance department to do the work, they're excited. They've been taught the skills, especially in Canada, when you go through a mill rating uh, course and so on, you're taught a host of things and you get excited and you run into that, that job like, I'm going to change the world. All of a sudden the brakes go and hit, you hit a brick wall because now you're not given the time to do the preventive maintenance correctly. Oh my God, you find all these problems, but nobody's fixing them. Why? It's because nobody's giving the real, uh, the real picture to these people of what the real world's about. And the real world, like it or not, focuses on production. It doesn't, it's not so much about maintenance work like that necessary evil that has to exist, just like quality. It's supposed to be job one, like safety. No, they're just necessary things we need to do to get that, that product out the door so that we can get paid and we get bonuses and so on and so forth. So there's, 
that element of our business that's not spoken about, that we're not teaching people about. And when you, you know, when you speak of, um, uh, you know, the, the act of listening and so on, again, going back to that realm, we don't teach our maintenance staff or engineering staff how to engage, if we're just talking about maintenance and engineering, how to engage in, with people. When I was a technician, I learned as an auto mechanic previous to that, class A auto mechanic, that I had to fix you before I fixed your car. Because many times people would come into a shop and, and there'd be, there really isn't anything wrong with their car. It was just their neighbor bought us the same model of car. It's five years newer. It doesn't have clunks and, and, and funny noises like yours. And uh, I have to you know, try to educate the person that it's just normal wear on a vehicle. Same thing happens when you go into a plant. Who works with the equipment day in, day out? The operator. Who's your best friend? operator and what do you how do you engage with that operator makes a difference whether you're going to fix the problem in a more efficacious manner or you're going to spend a lot more time getting your butt kicked because the downtime keeps piling up piling up and piling up and nobody's helping you and you go and talk to that operator if you said oh my god you break it again what are you doing leave the buttons alone that timber of voice that tonality that look on my face my body language is telling you you're an idiot and get away from the machine. What do you think of the, the, the effects of that are for that person that's running the machine? I don't like you, I don't trust you. Oh, here you come again, you're gonna, you're gonna tell me it's all my fault. And if I do press a button wrong, incorrectly, I don't care anymore. That's really the result we get. Now, yeah. let's take it to another side. I walk up and say, hey, how are you doing today? Hey, uh, oh my God, the machine's down. Our, um, what, what do you, did you notice anything? You know, did you, uh, could you help me with this? Just, just a different change, different tonality, less, I guess, less evasive, uh, different timber, different words used can change that whole dynamics in an instant where that person becomes your best friend. Because to me, an operator is a junior mechanic. They're working on the machine. Give them a sense of pride also and say, hey, can you help me? Could you, would you help me look at this with me? What do you think? You're, what are your thoughts? What do you think usually goes wrong? When I started my career, I knew nothing about machinery, but bearings are bearings, sprocket, sprocket, chain, chain. Well, I'll tell you, the operators quickly pointed out common issues that they had seen or recognized as problems. And man, it helped me immensely. Oh, the sensor sometimes needs to be adjusted. You go, hey, they're right. And I'd look at them and thank them. It boosted my career, you know, uh, exponentially in that environment, just on learning how to speak to people and giving them the tools they need. And, you know, when we talk about training and so on, we, we, don't, we don't teach people empathetic listening, but we also don't do a good job just doing the training of the hands-on of how to operate a machine. How many people go in and they start a job and, and then two days later, they're running a machine and they're left alone. And you go, what's going on here? Do we not understand that that person's gonna say, why am I doing this? I'm getting crap for, for running a machine incorrectly, they call maintenance over, and all that happens to be is they just didn't know how to understand how to run the machine. And by doing that alone, they just created a massive amount of fear in that person. Their anxiety and their stress just went through the roof, and they're walking out the door after a week. And we're going, well, we can't keep people in the plant. No kidding, because we're our own enemy, because we haven't taken the time to really learn these skill sets. And that's what I like about the leadership launchpad program. 
It actually gets to the mindset of people and understand why we're doing this, what we can do better, and how we can engage people and actually care about people. Because companies are just a collective of people. That's what it is. You have a machine, sure, to produce a product, but it's still a collective of people. And yeah. that's what we really need to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this concept, well, I always find it funny because it's not new, like operator-driven reliability or, you know, all these things go back into it. And you talk to anybody that's an expert in failure analysis, like you talk, we've had Bob Latino on the show and he's always talks about, you know, let's, the root of the failure is very rarely ever the physical cause. It's always a decision that somebody or a decision that somebody was enabled to make or felt, you know, you know it, it comes down to, um, not necessarily just the human root either, because people make a decision, but there's a reason they make a decision. And whether it's production pressures or whatever, it's ultimately it comes down to that system or that um, culture and whatever has been bred into that organization, which has resulted in in a failure. And so like you can you can boil just about any anything back down and people get uncomfortable, myself included. Like I've done an RCA where I've gone through and I'm like, okay, you know what? The, the issue here, we're going deeper and it, it's becoming, you know, a big cultural problem. And, you know, it's, it's about the human and how we manage our people and stuff like that. And I look at that and I'm like, okay, that's great to know. But most people don't feel like they can affect change in that space. And certainly not, you know, if you're doing an RCA, people are expecting change quickly. They're expecting you to come in with a solution, do an extra PM check. We're not going to see this again. But you're only solving that one failure mode. If you go deeper, then you start to solve more than just one failure mode. If you if you fix a if you figure out why people are just pencil whipping, for instance, well, you know what? You've just fixed a lot of failure modes that are associated with improper checks on a PM kind of thing, right? Like it's you start to build it down and like if you want to bring the human side down to more of that mechanical side where you see those differences like you see it everywhere it's you get happier people which is always good uh but you also get people doing the job and following the processes that are in place um i mean we talk about wanting to get better do we truly want to get better or do we just want to like like we can add pm checks like yeah so what like do we act like this is why RCM has been around since whatever 1968, <laughs> and we go into every plant around the world, and we're all bad at maintenance, right? We yep. are not getting, and we we don't get the production results we need. We're we're struggling, and it's exactly this. What are we trying to do here? Are we trying to get better? Because if we want to get better, I have a path for you. If you want to stay where you are, you can you can absolutely, you know put out another, add another PM to your checklist, add another check, add another sensor, add another process, add another system. To add to that, Rob, Yeah. to add to that, I think you hit it on the head. If we're, we keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. But one thing we're not trained to, and I think you and I have had many conversations about this. It was an eye opener, I think, for both of us to realize that there's another level here that we haven't looked at. Maintenance doesn't start with maintenance. It starts with production. It starts with people. 
I'll give you, Steve, I'll give you a, a quick little story back in the 90s that I did when I was uh, managing a maintenance department. I saw that two shifts producing the same number of pieces of glass through a grinder were producing different results. One was a thousand pieces of glass, the other 500. I sat there looking at the time at the machine process going, and I knew the process very well. I knew the setup. I knew exactly what was going on. I was reading a book by Tony Robbins at the time, The Unlimited Power. So talking about the power of NLP and talking about the power of consistency and congruency. So um, when I looked at the process, I saw that the operators were setting up the machine two different ways. One obviously getting the results you need, the other didn't. So I went to the plant manager at the time and I said, listen, I have an idea. Why don't we do a see here, touch approach, do some training with these people, show them, uh, not just talk about it, but show them how to set up the machine properly and let's see what happens. He literally said to me at the time, I'm not going to spend money on something I don't believe is going to work. So myself and the product, the quality manager, we had a long conversation. I said, well, let's put our, we're going to put our uh, jobs on the line. So I took a very, very high risk. At that time, we didn't have computers like we have today. I have an overhead projector, so on and so forth. And I created these uh, work instructions. So we had an in-class training program. We got inside, we got people uh, engaged on a Saturday. And I think I had I had two supervisors and I, there must have been 15, 20, 20 people or so involved. It was a lot of people. So it was a lot of money spent. And we talked about everything we're talking about now in the 90s. We're talking about here's the machine. Here's how they set it up. We also talked about human nature. We said, if you have a bad day, if your partner in crime you're working with has a bad day at home, a child is sick or whatever, they're going to bring it to work. So that was understood. So nothing changed today as it did back then. We then took it from a see to an adhere to a touch. We took a kinesthetic approach. We went out in the plant floor. We talked about the product going into the machine. We segregated glass, stair-step glass from a CNC cutter that wasn't set up properly. Taking that five minutes to segregate the glass saved 30 minutes of setup time. You take a piece of glass, you put it in the machine, you, you bring the uh, grinding heads in so it meets that piece of glass. You run it through the machine. It goes through one process uh, to grind two edges, and then it quickly moves to a secondary grinding station, so on and so forth. The end result, five pieces to set up the machine when the average was 30 to 35 pieces to set the machine up. Yields and throughput went through the roof on two shifts. One shift, the third shift, it did not. We recognize that the person running the shift did not have the mechanical aptitude to grasp the concept. Doesn't mean that person was wrong. We just moved them to a different seat on the bus. There's a perfect example of a see here touch. Take care of your maintenance by going outside of your box, going to production and assisting and helping production to understand what needs to happen in their machine. It, it changed the way we, uh, we operated after that. Now, shortly after that, I went to work for a corporate level with with the with the company and prior to that also and this is a this is a good uh, a good uh, bit of information to understand i set up a blanket work order system pm or a blanket work order system using the pm module to to capture equipment setup time okay that wasn't part of the maintenance department and that's why i told you that story because that's where it stemmed from it's part of understanding where production lies in the infecting maintenance. By doing so, in one year, we spent $28,000 worth of maintenance time 
setting up equipment. Now multiply that by a factor of 20 because now you're not getting time for your, your, your corrective maintenance. It's sucking away time for your preventive maintenance, let alone um, uh, working on things proactively to try to do predictive maintenance. Those things get affected. Meantime between failures, meantime to, to repair your downtime, it all gets affected by just doing something that's not part of your journey in your maintenance division. It wasn't our job to set up equipment, even though we know how to do it, it was the operator's job. So again, another example of the power of working outside your circle of influence in another department to, to, uh, to help your maintenance department, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people believe that maintenance and or reliability should be a separate department from maintenance. And you know, that's very organization dependent. And, you know, we've talked to Bob Latino lots about that one and, and where that falls. Cause just that like operations, people have a hard time listening to maintenance people. So hey, can you put somebody in a different role? Not that they're saying anything different. It's just, it's not viewed as the information coming from maintenance. I think that's a fundamental but, problem. But do you our, as maintenance listen to operations? There's a key. Right well, and it, it goes back. Like, obviously, I've been more on the maintenance side, so my set, my comments are operations don't listen to maintenance. But absolutely, it goes the other way too. Like, you know, I come up with a program; it's going to save you this much money. They're being pushed for more production, so they don't want to take the downtime for it. Like, all I see is, you know, you didn't want this program that's going to save you this much money, even if it costs you a bit of production today, but I don't know what's going on with them. And so again, that active listening and everything that you're saying there, Jim, like it's, you got to understand, you got to understand the whole picture. And the only way to do that is by talking to the guys and understanding what's going on and what they need and, and trying to come to a common ground. Cause at the end of the day, you want your arrows to be aligned. You want to be working towards the same goal as an organization. And that's right. You said it in there. What do they need? And the answer that they need is not production. It's what's the need underneath that. They don't want to get hammered by their boss. They don't want to get fired. They want to feel like they're able to be successful. If we can truly listen, we can truly get underneath the need of, I need to hit production numbers to what do they, what do they actually need? Yeah. that's. And right. if you can give them that, that's where you can change the outcome. Yep. Yeah, absolutely, Rob. And I think that's a perfect place to end because that really sums up sums up everything that, that we've talked about. It's um, what is that need? What is the actual problem? You know, Steve, if I could impart in some words on that also, I think that's the quest that both Rob and I are on. It's there has never been a real foundation in industry to set up that that type of environment. If you look at what people need, it's basically the same from industry to industry. We've never created the foundation. And now we're realizing the foundation is in the leadership and giving people a sense of purpose and, uh, and a sense of drive. Stephen Covey says it, right? Ownership, stewardship. 
so many people have written many books over and over again, but they've never applied them to what we need to do. In our industry, let's build that trust. Let's build that psychological safety. And if we do that first, the rest falls into place. Yeah, absolutely. That's great, guys. And now, before we wrap up, I do want to give you the opportunity to uh, plug whatever you've got going on here in the in the near midterm future. So, uh, Jim, what what's going on for you? Where can people find you? What do you got coming up? Uh, most people can find me on LinkedIn. I think that's the best way to 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 do so. Um, the projects I'm working on, of course, I work hand in hand with Rob on a lot of things uh, regarding the the human side of this. I would say that, and I would, and I strongly promote people to get into the leadership launchpad program. If not for just your company, then for yourself, because it really does start with yourself. And I believe everyone should start to go through these type of, of programs to analyze where they are in their life, their value system, to make sure that their life is the life that they really want to live. And when they do so, it does make a difference to the type of work that they want to pursue, the relationships they're in, the relationships they're going to build in the future, and so on. So again, strong advocate for Rob and the Leadership Launchpad program. And, uh, you know, I, I'll continue to promote that program indefinitely. Excellent. And Thanks, Rob? Jim. <laughs> yeah, so for me, I mean, obviously you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Rob Kalvarowski. Um, and then, yeah, if you want the Leadership Launchpad program right now, we don't have any public offerings coming up, but we can offer it at your site privately. So definitely reach out to me if you're interested in that. You can either get me on LinkedIn or you can send me an email, rob at elitehighperformance.com. And then we do have some other stuff coming out that's pretty cool. So we have psychological safety assessments. We have uh, leadership behavioral assessments, assessments around trust and engagement. We have programs around diversity, inclusion, mindset, emotional intelligence, burnout, a bunch of great stuff there. And then you can even get me for one-on-one -on -one coaching if that's something that you're interested in as well. So for all that stuff, you can go to elitehighperformance.com or you can just send me a message and I can, I can connect with you and we can chat. And then obviously I have a podcast on this stuff called the Leadership Launchpad Project. So you can find it everywhere that maintenance disrupted is. You can go there and find out more about Leadership 2.0. So definitely check those out as well. Yeah, that's great. And all those links will be in the podcast description or you can always reach out to me and I can get you in touch with either of these two gentlemen. And thank you guys for coming on the show. Um, and always a pleasure to chat with both of you.